Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. So welcome to the podcast. I'm Douglas Wilson. This is podcast episode 212. 212. So let's talk a little bit about, um, let's call it red state, blue state evangelicalism. And I'm not talking about evangelicals who live in red states or evangelicals who live in blue states. I'm talking about spreading all the evangelical, lining all the evangelicals up together and then clustering them and have the red state adjective apply to the evangelical and the blue state adjective apply to the evangelical. There are red statey evangelicals and there are blue statey evangelicals. In other words, what's happening to America is also happening to evangelical America. There is a severe division occurring. The fault lines are appearing. I don't think the great earthquake, I don't think the big one has hit yet, but we've come, we've come close a few times, but we are a nation divided. Uh, I think it's been trenchantly observed that we haven't been this divided probably since the 1850s. Every election seems to make things worse. You, you keep wanting things to be settled, or maybe we could decisively decide to go this way or that way or make a decision, but every election things get more exacerbated and, and inflamed. And now the same thing is happening within Christian circles. Now, initially, one of the initial charges was what I'm calling here red state evangelicals um, were accused of just being mindless Trump supporters and disgracing the gospel because they voted for Trump. And then on the other hand, blue state evangelicals were charged with betraying the unborn uh, not caring uh, what kind of judges were appointed and so on. I think Trump was simply a distraction. The fault lines, the fault lines existed long before Trump. Anthony Cotevilla wrote a great little book called uh, "The Ruling Class," and this was years years before Trump appeared on the scene as a political figure. And he described in agonizing detail what we are up against. There is a massive cultural divide in America. And it's, I think it's safe to say that most rank-and-file evangelicals are on one side of that divide, and a minority of evangelicals are on the other side of the divide. But then if we isolate the evangelicals themselves and consider them as their, as their very own nation, it's not like we've got millions on one side and three or four people on the other. Uh, no, evangelicalism is really divided as well. And we are divided in much the same way. Working class people, blue collar workers, heartland people, farmers, whatnot, on the one hand, and then academics and editors and publishers and so forth on the other. And uh, there are exceptions. And as a writer and as a publisher, I hope I'm one of them. But I think it's safe to say that evangelical America has its red states and evangelical America has its blue states. And that means a rupture is coming. Unless there's a massive revival, unless there's a Reformation revival, 
uh, rupture is coming. And it's going to be a little bit different than the fundamentalist modernist rupture in the early part of the 20th century, because that rupture occurred with existing established denominations like the Presbyterian Church, which divided as a result of uh, the encroachments of liberalism. But contemporary American evangelicalism was much more fragmented to begin with. We have lots of Bible churches, lots of independent Bible churches, some of them bound together in networks like Acts 29, that, things, things like that, sort of quasi-denominations or loose, very loose denominations. And a lot of the fellowship, a lot of the allegiances, if you will, are not so much along the lines of denominational loyalties, but are rather clustered around conferences and conference speakers. So you're more likely, you know, someone is uh, more likely to identify themselves as not, not so much as I'm a Methodist or I'm a Southern Baptist or I'm a Presbyterian as I'm a Ligonier guy. So a Ligonier guy is someone who goes to the Ligonier conferences or the Desiring God conferences or Together for the Gospel or, you know, we've got, we've got people from all kinds of different church backgrounds who, in this age of globalization, are clustered together in chat groups online, in, in how they follow certain web pages, the conferences they attend, and so on. And what's happening is I think we're I think we're headed for a crisis moment, and the one good thing about earthquakes is it reveals sort of definitively where the fault lines are. You have this uh, very clear rupture, but I think the rupture is not going to be nice and tidy. Like in the American Civil War, uh, you had the northern states and you had the southern states, and then you had the border states, but everything was you know sort of straight and clear. This one is a lot messier. Blue states are on the west coast and on the east, uh, northeast, and the red states are in the middle, but then there are blue spots in the red states, and there are red spots in the blue states, and, and everything is messy. And I think that the same thing is true, arguing by analogy, of evangelicalism. So this is not going to be very good punditry because I'm just going to say, well, let's wait and see. Let's see what happens. It's going to be, uh, whatever it is, it's going to be something. So continuing on with podcast episode 212, this is Hamartiology. Welcome to Hamartiology. Because idol worship was so common in the Roman world, and because idols were worshipped with animal sacrifices, they obviously had a word to describe the thing sacrificed. That word was idolothetan, idolothetan, E-I-D-O-L-O-T-H-U-T-O-N, idolothetan. Because the sacrifices were being made to demons and not to actual gods, I've included it here on my list of New Testament sins. Now, there's a small bundle of passages that address this problem, and I'm simply going to read through them. I'm going to read through those passages and then summarize the teaching of the New Testament on the subject, and I'll try to italicize with my voice uh, when I come to the place where the word is being, uh, that word is being rendered, idolatotan. Acts 21.25. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, there it is, and from blood, and from strangled, and from fornication. 1 Corinthians 8.1. 1. 
now is touching things offered to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. 1 Corinthians 8.4 As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. 1 Corinthians 8.7, just a few verses down. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol, unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. 1 Corinthians 18, just a few verses after that. For if any man see thee, which hast knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, there's the word from last week's podcast, in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? 1 Corinthians 10.19, a few chapters later. What say I then, that the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? Is the idol a thing? No. Is the thing offered to the idol anything? No. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.28, but if any man say unto you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, this is idolathaton, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. And then he goes on to say, I didn't mean your conscience, I meant the other guy's. Revelation 2.14. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. Alright, so that's what Balaam got Balak to entice the Israelites to do. Revelation 2.20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Notice that eating this thing sacrificed to idols and fornication in many of these verses are activities that go together. The temples were not only restaurants and meat markets and places of sacrifice, but they were also brothels. Acts 15.29, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which, if ye you keep yourselves, ye you should do well. Fare you well. That's Acts 15.29. All right, so, in modern times, if there were a fast food joint that was dedicated to Aphrodite, and every tray of burgers that came off the grill was offered up to a statue of her with a short prayer from the guy in the paper hat, and then he shoved it out the window to the staff out front, do you think there would be a controversy in the church about whether it was lawful to eat there? Well, <laughs> yes, there would be. And yes, there was in the first century. Yes, there was a controversy in the church. The summary answer to the problem appears to be that theologically and doctrinally, there was nothing wrong with eating such meat because there was nothing wrong with the meat. If you were eating at a pagan's, pagan friend's house, there was no need to inquire into the history of the meat. But when it came to relationships with other believers, some of whom had very tender consciences on the point, the teaching of the New Testament is that the practice of eating such meat is best avoided for the sake of pastoral sensitivities. You've got liberty, you have the liberty to eat that meat, but you don't you shouldn't swing your liberty around on the end of a rope. You might clock somebody. The problem is if you've got a person who was just converted out of the worship of Aphrodite, let's say a month ago. Last month he was converted Last month he was baptized, he became a member of your church. And the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth was a, was a brothel. It was a, staffed with priestess prostitutes. They sold meat there, they, you know, the, the whole thing. 
And then he's walking by and he sees you sitting there, you know, the, one of the elders or one of the strong Christians in the church eating your French dip. And he says, oh, that must be okay. And so he tries it. And then he's sucked back into the idolatry itself or sucked back into the fornication. That's what it means to stumble someone. All right, continuing with the podcast, episode 212. The book I'd like to review this time around is a little book called Importunity by Christopher Love. There are three books. If you look it up, uh, look it up online. Look at it. Amazon has it. Uh, Importunity by Christopher Love. Uh, he, he was a Puritan writer. And there are three books. One's called The Return of Prayer, The Return of Prayers. Then there's another one. I've forgotten the title of it. And then there's this one. And all three of them are small Puritan books on prayer. I've read two of them thus far, and Importunity is one of those. And they're just really rich. And Importunity is not giving up in your prayers. When you pray for something, and you're praying for it, and you pray for it, and you pray for it, there are two temptations. Well, there's more than two, but there's two that occur to me right off the bat. One of, one of them is you continue to pray for it, but you pray for it listlessly, where you know it's on your prayer list, and so you, you just you hit it, check, check that box. I've been praying for this for three years now. God is ignoring me, and so I'm going to touch that base. So I will technically be okay, but I'm ignoring God when I, <laughs> I'm ignoring God when I offer the prayer because I don't think it's going to do any good. That's not importunity. That's persistence, but it's persistence in unbelieving prayer, not persistence in importunate way. So Christopher Love, the, the thing that is amazing about these Puritan writers on subjects like this is before, before Bible search software, before having all the things at their fingertips that we have at ours, it's astounding to me. It, it regularly astounds me at how much at their fingertips every part of the Bible is, even if it's just for purposes of illustration. What, you know, you're talking about you asking God for something, and they can pull something out of some little nook or cranny in the Old Testament, illustrating the point, and oftentimes illustrating the point quite nicely. Jesus explicitly tells us to be importunate in prayer. Oh, I said there were two errors. One is to get listless in the, in the praying, and the other is to give up. You know, you, you just quit asking. You shrug and say, God doesn't care about that, so I'm leaving. That's very different than deciding that your answer was no. When Paul, when Paul prayed that his thorn in the flesh would be removed, he says he prayed three times, and God communicated to him, it's time to be all done with that. And so I would surmise that Paul quit praying for that uh, because God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. So deciding to stop praying for something in a principled way, I think God has told me no, and I think I'm going to decide before him in his presence to not pray for it anymore, is that's fine. That's a principled decision. But to get discouraged, and to let something slide off your prayer list or stagger off your prayer list because you think God's not paying attention, uh, that's, not, that's not good. So you either uh, just go through your prayer list listlessly, that's not importunate prayer, and you 
quit praying for something altogether, and neither is that. So this book, Importunity, is a very rich, very short book, very quick read, really recommended. Uh, uh, Nancy and I read this one together. We, we work our way through different books in our morning devotion, and this was a recent one where we just read a page or two a day, and it's dense enough, richly packed enough, that there's uh, something there just within every page or two that's available to encourage you. So, Importunity, Christopher Love. While you're at it, when you, when you look it up, Amazon will probably suggest the other two. Go ahead and get the other two. If you enjoyed this episode, check out Douglas Wilson's book, Empires of Dirt, Secularism, Radical Islam, and the Mere Christendom Alternative. Order today at canonpress.com. <laughs>